0: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: This is Broad Radio. For you, by you.
0: More of us. Broad Radio. Here for more.
1: Well, this is a first for me, Nelly, because I mm-hmm. have interviewed some pretty amazing people, mm-hmm. very famous people, but yes. I have never interviewed one of my dearest friends from high school. Is but it I'm weird? Av- no, I'm thrilled because oh, I thrilled. adore her. Yeah. She's one of my heroes. And uh, today, not just as one of my friends is why we're interviewing her. She's the CEO of Community Refugee Sponsorship Australia. I'm so proud to call her my friend, Lisa Button. Hello, darling.
3: Hi, Joe. What a lovely introduction. Hi, I Nellie. won't call
2: you darling, Lisa, but hello. <laughs>
3: you can if you
1: want. <laughs>
2: oh,
3: hello, Pesh. <laughs> hello, darling. <laughs> so community
1: refugee sponsorship yes. is just, it sounds to me like an incredible response to what all of, I think, most Australians have felt really angry about, which is Australia's government's response to refugees. Can you explain the program?
3: Yes, where to start? Well, look, I'll start by saying we didn't invent this idea. We've actually borrowed it from Canada where it's been running really successfully at a huge scale for more than 40 years. Um, and what it involves is a, groups of everyday Australians. So it doesn't matter who you are, if you're a you know competent adult in your own life, you get together a group of people who live near you um, and you put your hands up to sponsor a refugee family. Um, and what that means is... Um, you agree to um, be there for them from their very first day arriving in the country. You meet them at the airport um, and walk the journey with them for their first 12 months in the country, helping them with um, various practical things along the way. Um, And some of those things are, um, you have a financial component just in the first few weeks, like helping them um, set up their first house and providing them with temporary accommodation while they look for a house. Um, and um, a little bit of income support just until they get onto um, Centrelink or they find employment, whichever happens first. Um, But mostly it's about the practical support of, um, you know, just orientating them into your community, um, helping kids enrol in school, helping people look for work and understand, you know, what, what that looks like in Australia. So it's a very human thing and it really taps into, like, the skills that we all have is just, you know, competent people in our own lives.
2: Lisa, one of the things that I love most about what you've just said, but also the program in general is the, not just the practical support, but the welcoming sort of emotional support that it provides for you to meet someone at the airport, for example, because the reality sadly is we know that there is also pockets of our community that are really resistant to refugees we do actually have, there is racism in that. I mean, let's just call it what it is. So I think we, those of us who don't believe that, need to counter it so that when refugee families, for example, do come across that, they know that it's not everybody, you know, that they know that they are welcomed by some Australians, hopefully most Australians. Is is that, does that make sense?
3: Absolutely. I think that's so true. There's that welcome of of you know, it's not about government saying, here's your visa, you can come. It's actually about people mm. there at the airport with, you know, a bunch of flowers and a warm hug saying, you know, welcome to Australia. We're here to, um, to welcome you and, and support you. Um, but it's also, there, there's this ripple effect, which to me is one of the most exciting things about it. Like I've got a, a friend who's been involved in, um, we ran a, a pilot program that started a few years ago and she got involved and um, she was quite passionate about supporting refugees. Her dad, not so much, but he became involved because he got drawn in through through her involvement. He just wanted to get his toolkit out and um, (laughs) assemble IKEA bunk beds. Um, And he's become wonderful friends with um, the Afghan refugee who um, my, my friend and her group supported, through the act of helping them build their Ikea Mm. furniture and using as usual on the weekend, you know, he just wanted to do something practical. And I can't imagine, he certainly wasn't racist to begin with, but racism thrives when people don't know each other as people. Correct. Um, As soon as you have an opportunity to actually get to know someone as a human, I don't think Mm. very many people are, um, Mm. you know, inherently racist. They're afraid of the unknown or they believe, you know, simple stereotypes about people they've not met um but yeah this this really breaks that down Mm. I think too
1: people generally if they haven't taken the time to investigate what happens for someone who is a refugee normally Mm -hmm. they wouldn't understand how little support there is yeah you know, the stark difference. I think people have this assumption that, mm. oh, if they come, then suddenly mm. they're given all of this. Someone from the government meets
2: them with oh, yeah. a bunch of and they get unemployment and benefits beds, and yeah. suddenly
1: they're getting mm. the things that they don't deserve because they've, yeah, whatever, all this strange mm. rhetoric that isn't based in fact. And now hopefully there's a different pathway that people can kind of see that, oh, no, it's just it's just a kindness that we're offering, isn't mm. it?
3: yeah absolutely i mean there are some you know we've been we as a country have been settling refugees for a long time and there are programs that are government funded that provide case management support for people when they arrive but it's somebody behind a desk um, doing the very best they can but you know providing support to dozens of individuals and they can't they can't get up and ride the bus with someone they can't Um, invite them over for a cup of tea on the weekend and just have a chat like it's it's just not within the realm of possibility as a professional caseworker so it's injecting that human element into it all and and we know i guess you know we all know from our own experience so much of the good stuff that we achieve in life we achieve through the support of our networks whether they be you know friends or family or professional networks um, and when you arrive in a country for the first time and a country that you haven't necessarily planned to migrate to this is one of the misconceptions about refugees sometimes this is Australian perception that there's you know millions of refugees in the world and they all want to come to Australia and that they you know they're hell-bent on getting here the reality is most refugees all they want is to go back to where they grew up and rebuild their lives and that's not a option obviously for them and so the second best option is to get an opportunity to rebuild your life in a a safe new country but you know you haven't been they haven't necessarily been researching australia and you know life in australia and learning english for years and years and years because they had planned to be living happily and peacefully in the country that they were from originally um so you know that need for support that any migrant needs is, is even more acute in the case of, of someone who is forced to come here by circumstances beyond their control.
2: Hmm. Lisa, one of the, this is a bit left field, but try and go with me. One <laughs> of the things I find really interesting about the sort of fascination with The Handmaid's Tale is that to me, obviously, it's a great, you know, feminist drama and based on feminist books. But to me, it's actually a story of refugees. It's a story of displacement, war, torture, escape, you know, the politics of in the refugee movement. One of the things that I find interesting is that we watch something like that and think, well, if that was happening, you know, if June, who's the main character of uh, The Handmaid's Tale, if she showed up in Australia, she could come and live with me and I would take her baby in and I would give her bunk beds and help assemble IKEA, but we seem to have a disconnect when it comes to the reality of refugees in it, like that is happening now, as you well know. So how do we make that connection become reality? The impulse to help is there if we are empathising, but why do we have this resistance to helping in reality, do you think?
3: I think it's because, well, part of the answer to that is um, because while Australia does welcome a certain number of refugees every year and they're out... You know in our communities working um, in businesses you know doing doing their thing people don't necessarily encounter them as refugees Mm -hmm. and so the concept of a refugee is a is a is a phenomena it doesn't have a human face for a lot of people Um, and you know shows like The Handmaid's Tale it puts a human face on Um, on the phenomena Mm. and really sort of triggers that empathy um and i think one of the things that is so exciting about like what's happened in canada it's estimated now that one in three canadians have come into contact with this program over there a refugee sponsorship and that means that one in three canadians um, is either in touch with someone from a refugee background knowingly knows Mm. them as a refugee or, or, you know, or knows someone who's closely in touch and is hearing those stories. Um, and I think that's going to sort of have a ripple effect of um, not only empathy, but just understanding, you know, what is it that's that's made you have to leave your home country and what's it like to come to Australia in those circumstances um, and overcome fears and misconceptions about people and. and you know, one of the things I find interesting, having worked in the refugee space for a long time, is some people demonise refugees, others romanticise them. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, the only thing that refugees have in common with one another is the fact that they've been forced to flee mm. a country owing to, you know, who they are or what they believe. And they are people across every possible spectrum of skill, personality, political belief. You know, they're a very diverse group of people and the the more that we can just understand them as just people, people. trying to mm. get on with their lives you know the, the more um i guess empathet- empathetic and responsive we can be as a community mm. lisa
1: i um was talking about this with willow my daughter and uh, just the emotional connection i had to the thought that i could be one of these groups of community mm. this actually i began to cry mm. because i just thought <laughs> what we could do mm. for a family who might arrive from syria or whatever parts of the world they're coming from you know that just is incredibly emotional to me but you've you've seen we've had families arrive already can you tell us mm. who you've met and, and
2: what, what happens
3: yes mm. Oh, goodness, where to start? It is really amazing. I mean, we've we've had the first few families arriving under what's now um, a government-supported program, Um, and that's just been amazing. I was at the airport um, a couple of weeks ago in Sydney as two Syrian families arrived to be met by groups from Gosford and Goulburn. There's a regional New South Wales communities for those not familiar. Um, And it was just so amazing to... Um, to witness that. The the groups had been talking to the refugees over, you know, WhatsApp and Zoom before they'd even arrived in the country. So by the time um, the families arrived at the airport, you know, they were hugging each other, like, you know, like old friends to some extent. They were sort of old and new at the same time. There was actually this beautiful tentative tenderness to the whole moment. It was, I, I might get a bit emotional when I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've, we've now heard from those groups um, about what those first couple of weeks have looked like, and you know, one of one of the guys who was part of one of those family groups, he arrived with four job offers um, or job opportunities before he even um, landed in the country Amazing. because the group had been doing all this groundwork and. Um, you know, there's other groups around the country who've solved the issue of housing um, by, you know, sending an email out to all the churches in their community and saying, you know, does any, do any of you have any vacant church properties that you'd like to let, rent out, you know, to someone from a refugee background? Um, one of the families had, um, they found out, they realised that the the, the daughter um, of, sorry, one of the groups realised that the daughter of the refugee family was celebrating her sixth birthday like three or four days after arriving in the country um so they organized this you know birthday party for this little girl and they found um they went and looked in their own community for someone uh, a family with an arabic speaking background so that not only would she have um you know the support of their broader group but kids her own age that she could speak to in her first language and they had this beautiful little birthday party for her which i think the family was incredibly touched by Isn't
2: that Beautiful. Um,
3: Mm. yeah I could bang on a bit more I've actually had um, some people staying with me for the last week um, from from Afghanistan and um, had my own little personal taste of you know walking the talk of this and it was just really lovely to um, just meet these people and share a little bit of their journey just people to I'd, people. I'd really yeah and look yeah. when you one of the things I'm really conscious about when we're talking to people it can seem a bit overwhelming the idea of sort of taking on that responsibility but when you share it across a group of people um, that you're working with that you know your friends your neighbors it's not that overwhelming and you get so much out of it um, and it, it's really quite instinctive the, the type of support and work that you're providing i mean the fact is it's it's like if you had someone come and stay at your
1: house, you would do all those things, right? You would welcome them. You would feed them. You would make sure they have Mm. a warm bed. You Mm. would do all of those things. It's just that on a sort of a larger, more community Mm. scale, right? So um, it is instinctual to us, I think. I think so. And
2: especially for those of us, and I know you're one of them and I'm one of them, who's been so upset about the refugee Mm. debate in this country for at least a couple of decades, but you don't know what to do. Yes. It's something you know, so like practical. You can give money to organisations, mm. but to be able to go, I gave this little girl her, her, her sixth birthday party.
1: Yeah, amazing. So, Lise, um, mm. to get involved, to form a community mm. group,
3: we want to go to which website? Go to uh, refugeesponsorship.org.au and you'll find a, um, a page dedicated to the new CRISP program. That's the acronym is C-R-I-S-P. Um, which has all sorts of resources. We've got a public information session online tomorrow night, um, so you can register for that, or you can download various bits of material. You can watch a recorded information session if you don't, uh, if you can't make it tomorrow night. And I should just add something you said a minute ago, Joe. Um, there's no expectation that you would have refugees staying, uh, a refugee family staying in your house. Um, there is an expectation that you would arrange temporary accommodation for the first few weeks before they can find a permanent permanent um housing but how you solve that is really up to you and your group it could be a, a a granny flat it could be an airbnb it could be a service apartment um you know whatever suits you so i just mm. wanted to clarify that yeah um, I, I was
1: using that as an analogy mm, like if you yes welcome it, you to were to yeah. your house yes
3: but no but yeah, yeah and some yeah, and some people yeah. some people do some people do um and but i just wanted to make sure people didn't think no. oh i have mm. to have a refugee family living with me for 12 months that's not no and that's a great clarification
1: but um, most definitely there if you if you've got a group of five to
3: ten people in your community Mm. then accommodation is something that can be solved absolutely and you'd be surprised you know people freak out about accommodation because we hear about the housing crisis all the time and they go oh my gosh how am i going to solve that one Um, we had one group who went to the local real estate agent expecting to be told you know, no. showing the door, why would we do that? And instead they got this, oh, my God, you know, that's amazing what you're doing. How can we help? Should we put mm. a banner across our mm. our website so that all of our landlords know that, that we're doing this? And, um, mm. you know, people really do want to help. It's actually very cathartic for yeah. us all, I think, psychologically. I and mean, if you're persuasive, uh, not... <laughs> yeah.
2: you know, like if you're there are the realities, a lot of the people listening to this show are resourceful and persuasive mm. and actually can yeah. ring around and kind of go, this is what I need, can you help? And mm. it's amazing what you can get. And
1: and just finally, Absolutely. I'd say, Lise, this isn't about you know like a a handout sort of charity notion. This is contributing to Australia and mm. who we are as a nation. What these
3: people bring to our country. nation
1: building—that's it, isn't yeah. it? Like it's it a is. joyful thing. Mm.
3: It is. It is so nation building, and it's 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 restorative. I think for yeah. for all of us. So yeah. Mm. I could bang on for hours yeah. about oh, this, yeah. but, Ooh, um, oh, uh, but the resourcefulness of people is absolutely phenomenal. And it's so satisfying, you know, mm. when you solve one of those problems. It's mm. you get a big kick out of it. You go, "Bang!" I just, you know, sorted and that. It's actually, yeah.
2: doing something. You know, when you sit there and you despair about the war in mm. Syria, you despair about Ukraine. Like, there's so many things in the news for us to be despairing about. Getting involved in something like this, you're like, I've helped somebody. Mm. You know, I didn't just like a post. I've helped somebody.
3: Well, absolutely. And if I could just, yes, go. Can I add one more thing? (laughs) With the Albanese government, they've committed um, to uh, implement this principle of additionality, which basically means that for in the future, for every refugee family that gets sponsored, it means one more family gets the opportunity to come into Australia. So it does actually expand the footprint. yeah Um, yeah yeah. awesome that hasn't happened yet but by Mm. but in a few months i hope that that will be implemented so um, it really does make a difference to the global writing it down
1: honestly lisa and Mm. to blow smoke up your ass that comes down to your very (laughs) very clever work as ceo of this organization Mm. because i know that there's a huge amount of work lobbying the government working with the Mm. government to get this across the line in that way you're
3: very clever thank you so
1: much for the work that you do you're amazing well done
3: Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Nellie. I really appreciate the opportunity to spread the word. Awesome. We well look- done to what you're doing. So proud Thanks, of you Joe. Oh love, I can't oh, wait. Nellie, I
1: can't I wait for you. the next fifty years. <laughs> it's our fiftieth year. Oh fantastic. Oh my god, Lots we've had catch-ups. some we've had some good times, haven't we, We have yeah. indeed. <laughs> okay, take
3: All care. All Take care. Thanks See so much. You.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. More of us. Broad Radio. Here for more.
1: So, Nellie, you and I are of a certain generation as women, (laughs) right? Of a certain age. Of a certain age. And as someone in that generation of a woman, I do consider it my great joy, but mm. also duty to be role model and sort of yep. make it easier for those women that come Absolutely. after us. Absolutely. You don't pull the ladder up after you. Absolutely. And I've kind of assumed, because I see around so many powerful women in their 20s and 30s who seem so much more together than I mm. was then, and I go, oh, well, they are kind of working it mm. out. They've mm. got it together in a mm. way I didn't, and we're in
2: good hands. Mm. But perhaps that's not the case. Yes, and I was one of those young women who presented like that but wasn't. So I'm always a little bit sceptical. You know, when the girl power movement and all that sort of stuff, like, you can appear very confident and be you know paddling like a duck on the inside, going, I'm not sure what I'm doing. Not sure who I well,
1: am. Well, it seems like new research out of Monash University right? suggests that you could be correct. <laughs> this this study is called "Young Women Choosing Careers: Who mm. Decides?" and it shows that young women, in many instances, don't have the optimism. No that we had hoped for them mm. and to tell us more we're joined by lead author and senior research fellow at the school of education culture and society at monash university it's a very grand title mm. but well earned i know dr joe gleason good yes. morning joe
4: thanks joe thanks nelly it is a very long title isn't it
2: yeah. oh, oh well i was just going to call you dr joe normal joe dr joe there you go yeah yeah um
1: works for me yeah. yes so This study, very interesting, It shows that uh, Mm. women we assumed at the moment have more opportunities and freedom and feel like, yes, Mm. I've got Mm. all these choices ahead of me, isn't that great? But that doesn't translate into a great deal of confidence.
4: No, not at all. Probably the most um, alarming statistic, I think, in the research is that nearly 60% of the young women, irrespective of their confidence, uh, irrespective of uh, their anxiety levels, which are incredibly high, I think the the most startling statistic is 60% of them. And there's quite a few that were in this sample. 60% feel that they have fewer career choices Uh, their career choices are constrained because of who they are or where they come from. So there's some real baggage uh, young women are carrying around. Mm.
2: One of the things, so I'm going to start with a pet peeve, if that's all right, because I think you might be able to answer it. Absolutely. I have not been able to get an answer to this for years in interviews. And that is that it's often cited that young girls are doing better at school, you know, and there's almost a suggestion, well, not almost, there's a suggestion that boys are being left behind, that the education system's too tailored to girls. There's kind of an assumption that we should feel sorry for boys. My view is that young girls do better at school than they do better at uni, then they still get paid less and don't get the jobs they want. Like that's the rest of the story. So when you say young women have anxiety about their jobs, isn't that actually reality?
4: Yeah, so I'm I'm with you. Um, so my view is that, look, compared to a generation ago or, or a generation past, um, yeah, young women comparatively are doing much better at school, mm. um, and they, there's more of them in school. There's more of them that are staying to year twelve. There's more of them in higher education, um, but. Yeah, the story is, is that women, um, you know, all the way through tertiary education and whether that's into a training pathway or a graduate employment pathway uh, or it's an apprenticeship or, or, or whatever the pathway, young women, it takes them longer to find Work that is related to their study or their training, um, it takes them longer to be full-time employed, and it takes them longer to get pay uh, parity if, in fact, they ever do, which we which we know that they don't. Women are also overrepresented in sectors like health, like hospitality, um, like uh, service-type industries, and we know hey, we've just seen it for the last wow. two and a half years that, that women are far more vulnerable mm. um, in the workplace than men.
2: And, yeah, sorry, can I just follow up very quickly? Because the reason <laughs> I asked that question is that when we hear young women have anxiety, I think sometimes yep. we think it's irrational mm. and we think they're worrying about nothing. And then you go, no, actually, if you do go into teaching, for example, you are going to mm-hmm. be less likely to end up an AP or a principal if you're a girl, this this fear Absolutely. is real. Absolutely,
4: yep, this fear yeah. is real. And I think what's loud and clear in the research is that the young women, um, There's a lot of pressure on them or they feel that there's a lot of pressure on them to choose certain pathways because they want to please others, because others have expectations of them. Mm. And that in and of itself is creating significant stress for them. So... There's there's statistics that sit behind some of uh, the outcomes that were presented in the report that the young women just don't feel as if they have control of their own destiny and that worries me greatly. Mm. That worries me greatly because it's starting in early high school and... We can only assume that that's being carried forward uh, through other significant milestones. It's, it's deeply concerning to me that young women feel that.
1: And I think the frustration too is that um, in a way I go, oh, well, our generation has failed then, right? Mm-hmm. Because cause they're feeling exactly the same way perhaps we mm-hmm. did. But it's actually because we talk and talk and talk and talk we're doing so much talking mm. but then nothing changes mm. actually in action or it's so slow yeah, yeah. so so mm. i don't even know what com- what can we do other than continue <laughs> this incredibly snail pace change but they're kind of going. Well, yeah. you're all talk. You're not making any difference for us.
4: <laughs> well, firstly, there isn't that much talk. Um, as I'm going, well, Joe, I know that you're a I'm mother. In a of talk. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> Nellie, I'm not sure mm. if you if you have children. I know yes, myself. I do, yeah. mm. I'm a careers counsellor as well as um, a research fellow at Monash, so I do a lot of talking about this, mm. right? And we think that parents are talking to their children. We think that schools are talking to their students, but actually they're not. Um, So that's the first thing that needs to change is that greater conversations about um pathways mm-hmm. and, and realistic pathways as well um needs to happen so we think that there's a lot of talk but there's not but secondly so can I
2: interrupt for yeah sure before you get to your second point. It. like I have a 15 year old I do public okay. speaking classes at her high school and yep. the thing that I notice is that a lot of the girls post girl power all the sass the lizzo, all that they present as very confident And you scratch the surface or you're with them at nine o'clock at night or whenever it is. And they are a ball of anxiety and indecision and fear and body image stuff and all the things. So I wonder if the reason the schools aren't having the conversation is because these girls seem fierce. It could be. It could be. What from a a careers
4: education point of view, what concerns me is they're still talking to the girls like they did in our generation, yeah? Yeah? It's a a 10-minute conversation in Year 10 about what subjects you're going to select or what secondary school pathway that you're going to select. They then don't talk to you again until Year 12 and in Year 12 it's like, well, what university are you going to? Mm -hmm. Like I've got some horrific stories of the lack of support or the assumptions that are made within careers education programs um, based on socioeconomic status yeah. about what information the girls will get and what
2: they won't get. Mm. And gendered. It's still gendered, consciously Very and Very gendered. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very gendered. And sorry, Very I interrupted your second point. What was your second point? Oh, probably yeah, lost I remember it. <laughs> my second point now. <laughs>
1: Got that kind <laughs> yes, of memory, Nellie Oh my god! No, the second
4: point. The second point was really look careers education. You know, it's it's connected with what I just said. Then is that the careers education advice and and the structure of careers education within schools it hasn't really changed um, over decades, and and that needs to change. There needs to be broader ways of connecting, um, if nothing else, than connecting with parents and carers and helping to educate parents and carers about what what are, what are up-to-date information about tertiary pathways, about training and apprenticeship pathways and, and about career opportunities. It's concerning that um, our young women are choosing careers in such a narrow band mm. and not even considering other things that are out there. It, it, it is concerning. Joe, can I um, bring it, be really selfish and bring it back
1: to me? Um, Absolutely. Because... <laughs> no, no. Um, we at Broad Radio, I've been speaking with um, the National Association of Women in Construction, NARWIC. They're incredible, right? And one of the yep. things, their challenges is to get education into schools and to girls to yep. understand that construction and engineering is a career pathway yep. because it's still, that conversation is still not being had. But I kind yep. of go, okay, we've all said a thousand times we all say you cannot be what you cannot see mm. is it as is that still valuable for us to show stories to demonstrate situations in which women have come from every different background and done the thing is that still of value
4: it is absolutely of yes. value and but those conversations don't need to just happen with the young girls they need to happen with their social networks as well. Like there's so many stories where a girl might be inspired at school, maybe uh, an alumni student comes and speaks about the fact, you know, to roll with this uh, scenario, the fact that they've got a great pathway uh, in construction or in engineering and she goes away inspired and she goes home and she might talk about that with her parents and her parents uh, will sit there and go, no, you don't want to do that. Mm. You don't want to be... You don't want to be on a construction site. No, 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 no. You need to be a nurse or you need to be a teacher. And that's where the anxiety and the lack of confidence and the second guessing comes because that young woman had an idea that she was interested in and it got shot down. So, Joe, those stories are so important, but they need to happen beyond the school. They need need to happen... Mm. They need to be heard. By they because
2: I agree. It's like these girls have, and the boys that I work with as well. They have this big red balloon of confidence and ideas and you know hope, and then they go home and someone puts a needle in it. Mm. Yeah. You know, whereas if Absolutely. their parents have met, uh, you know, I've got a carpenter friend who's my age, you know, late forties. If they'd met Hillary. And they can see that she runs her own business and she can determine her own hours and family flexibility and all that. Maybe yeah. they'd be more encouraging of their daughter. Mm.
1: But
2: and th- they're scared. I think also that I'm learning that it's from women who might want to re enter the
1: workforce and do something completely different. Yes. It's that kind of broadening that
2: scope mm. for them as well. Especially through COVID. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Absolutely. So, and so to your point, Joe again. That's why these stories are really Don't important matter. to tell, yeah. um, and we think they're happening, uh, but they're not. And so we need to do far more in the space of having conversations at at government levels. And to this point, around construction, you know, we're having some really fantastic discussions at the moment with Master Builders Association uh, and with other associations really trying to create some action in, in even though it's a small slice uh, of a sector, uh, which is construction and heavy capital industries, it's still an important place to start, I think, to demonstrate positive stories, to demonstrate that things can be done differently.
1: Mm, I love it. Mm. Well, congratulations on the study. I know that it goes much deeper into this uh, research than what we've scratched the surface on today, but I really appreciate your time, <laughs> Dr. Uh, jo. You know, no. It's
2: really important to have the research to back up the hunch. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's really important in those conversations to be able to say, no, no, I can show you the proof because people, yeah. if they're stuck in their ways, they don't believe it.
4: Absolutely, Nellie. Well, Uh, I guess that's why I do what I do. Mm, Yeah. mm. But thanks for having me. Thank
2: you. Thanks,
1: Dr. Joe, and might I just say, just outstanding glasses.
2: <laughs> like, you can't comment on a woman how she looks. You can't. You, like, can, you, can't. you can. You can. Like, I love those glasses. Oh,
4: thanks. My kids think I look like Edna off the Incredibles. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. No, she's no that's funny. what I think. She's a stylish designer icon. So that's I'm very happy to own it. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Dr. Joe. Love.
2: This is Broad Radio for you, by you,
0: more of us. Radio,
2: here for more. Oh, now uh, we've gone over time as always because uh, well. I just love this so much. Yeah, but, uh, fun, fun. I'm, yeah. We're just having these, because conv- my daughter's 15, it's like vet streams, VCE streams, you know, career possibilities. You realise, like it really taps into your own anxieties and fears. I think there's still a lot of parents who are really... Um, scared about vet, vocational education mm-hmm. and training, and the options that that presents. Like when um, she said, when Dr. Joe said, oh, you know, designer, my daughter's interested in being designer, that's a vet stream. Yes. Yeah. You know, but for a, for a middle-class family, the, the anxiety it's is- It's so elitist, isn't it? It's it. so- it really it's is. It's so based in really this is. absolute snobbery around.
1: It's class, mate. It's, it's terrible. It's class. But where do you begin, right? Because my daughter's thirteen and I've I've asked her many questions, right? Mm. You know, what lights you up and what yeah. do you really feel and she yeah, the the level of choice is overwhelming yeah, as well. Is. So it where is. do you begin with that conversation with your daughter? I think
2: you I begin with her by going, What what do you really like doing? Mm. And then we start talking about the practical stuff. In her case, and it might be the same with Willow as well, she's got health issues. Mm. So when we talked about um fashion for example, I'm like we need to think about the practical reality of whether you can stand up all day. She can't stand up all day. So she can't cut patterns and things like that. Now that's a quite an extreme example for with someone with an illness, but mm. it'll be the same for kids in different ways. Can you concentrate that much mm. if you want to be a game designer? You know, Can you handle being around people that much if you want to be a teacher? What's your personality and likes Yes. Start there.
1: But that's so interesting because Dr. Joe says that women are – young women are limiting themselves because of who they, who they perceive themselves to be and mm. where they come from. Mm. So that's a really subtle conversation though. It is
2: a subtle – but I think I mean personality. Like I'm a people person. Right. You know, so if you say to me, let's look at all career options where you're around people a lot, I'm fine. Mm. Whereas I think we say to a lot of young girls who are not people people – Go into nursing, mm. go into teaching. Mm. You go, that girl's going to be around people 12 hours a day and lose her mind. Mm. She'd be better off being an engineer where she has to consult with a couple of people a day at tops. Yeah, You know, we've got gendered assumptions that all girls are sociable. They're not. <laughs> I you can know? guarantee that's not the case. Or if a young man doesn't have social skills, <laughs> yeah. for the love of Jesus, don't send him to be a GP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. actually start with who mm. you are and build from there i think mm,
1: yeah well um as always a joy to have so you so much fun thank
2: you show.